Welcome to the first ever Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast. This is episode number one with your hosts, The Galaxy Electric. I'm Jacqueline. I am Augustus, and today's episode is about Peter Zinoviev. Awesome. We are talking about Peter Zinoviev today, and you should know that if you're in the group, if you've been just kind of spying the group a little bit. Um, maybe you haven't picked up on it, but we like to focus on one person per month. This month is Peter Zinoviev. And it's kind of an interesting choice because while he is considered a tape music leader um, in the British, you know, electronic music history books, uh, he's more of a computer music uh, innovator. So it's going to be interesting to talk today about how he influenced the tape music scene and early synthesizer use, but also is so much more than that, which is not, you know, stuff we usually cover in the group. So tying all those threads together is really Yeah, fun. and it almost seemed um, as an accident that he influenced the tape music scene, really, because he didn't set out to, to do that, right? Yeah, I would say that that's true. It was sort of like a byproduct of the times, maybe even. So I guess, speaking of the times, let's talk about, you know, who Peter Zinoviev is and when he was born and all that fun biographical stuff that I find really interesting in terms of the story of the person and why they, you know, are even someone we would talk about. So he was born in 1933 in England, but his parents were actually uh, Russian aristocrats who fled the revolution there. Um, not together, they actually met in England, but both of their families had escaped um, and his mother's life, um, she was actually a princess, Princess Sophia. Uh, she has written an autobiography, or she had written an autobiography, and Peter Zinoviev's daughter also wrote a book about her. So she's a really fascinating person, and she lived a really, she almost lived like nine lives. She was, um, you know, captured by the Nazis in Paris and um, was there for several years, but did survive and helped a lot of Jewish people escape. So she's got a lot of awards from the queen for the work that she did during that time. But she just, you know, she was a really interesting person. We could do like a whole separate podcast series Cover on her. these people's lives <laughs> and like where they come from and, yeah, you know, definitely their family backgrounds and stuff. Um, but that just kind of gives you a sense of, you know, his parents and the influence they may have had on him in terms of where they come from. Um, his father was an engineer, but uh, lost his job during the Great Depression, and his parents got divorced. And I believe he was raised by his grandparents and a little by his father. So he wasn't really, from what I can tell, raised by his mother at all. Um, so that's a little bit of what I've gleaned from you know researching his background. Um, he did go to Oxford, and he studied... Geology. geology. Uh, he, I believe he achieved his doctorate. Yes, his doctorate in geology. So, And that actually informed a lot of his um, later work. You know, so he, he, and it seems as though, you know, based off of some of the material that we've read and studied, that it influenced a lot of his, like, uh, computer uh, sequencing programs and things, too. Oh, yes. The way that he was understanding geology was he was seeing those same patterns in computing technology and in music and in writing. Uh, so that's something interesting that he uniquely tied together through his life and his studies and kind of promotes this idea of, you know, the natural elements having similar you know, patterns to what we would see in computers. And I think, you know, we talk about He that references bits of geometry and slicing things in half and shapes and, you know, 
that seems to play a pretty big role in the way that he was um, going about his voltage-controlled sequencing. Yeah, because he actually did all of these studies before he got into music and electronic music and synthesizers. He was um, uh, interested in electronics as a boy. It says it was sort of like more of a hobby for him. And, you know, studying geology, I'm not really sure exactly why he chose that path specifically. But he does seem like a, just a very curious person. Yeah. So, he never talks about it. I, I've yeah, never heard anything what, about mostly, the origin of that. Yeah, mostly what we've been studying is, you know, who he is as a person and what made him interested in these ideas. We kind of know what the ideas are. We know what the sort of legacy he's left is. But we're still trying to piece together, you know, what makes him tick and what makes him want to innovate in these ways. And that's kind of hard to, um, we, we've figured out in, in a lot of the videos we watched and, and articles we've been reading, he's kind of an unknowable creature. I think that that actually goes into his decision to be a geologist. How many geologists do you know? You know, it's kind of a unique field. Um, especially if you're somebody who has the other interests that he had, like, you know, music and such, you know, you wouldn't, that's, that's very left field <laughs> for yeah. him to choose that. I think it really path. proves like what an interesting, unique mind he has and probably just the stew of influences he had growing up. Um, you know, one of the most pivotal things about his early life is that he did marry a very wealthy woman. And it afforded him to not have to work. So after spending time in this remote island in Scotland doing his um, doctoral thesis on geology, which is a whole you know chapter of his life we could cover on its own, he um, didn't have to work. For all of us creative types, that's yeah, like that sound... step one, check. <laughs> check. Find Money. a rich way. Taken care of. <laughs> So I think that those elements, you know, that foundation is why we have EMS. You wouldn't have it without those elements. I'm curious what his life would have been without those things, right? I mean, would we have. We might as well mention the fact that he sold her tiara. Yes. To get the, the computer. The family jewels. <laughs> he had to sell the family jewels in order to build his first computer. So I guess, you know, that's, you know, basic biographical information about him. Um, you know, his grandmother was also very interesting. One of the first women to fly a, Oh, first female bomber pilot. That's a fact that I got from that's, you can fact check that in 1913. So he comes from a long line of really bold women, I would say, yeah. which I'm, you know, very fascinated by, but, um, yeah. Why are we talking about him? Because he was the first human to have a computer in his home. In the early 60s. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, something he brings up a lot. He was He's very <laughs> prideful about that information, and I respect it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think probably because he was experiencing a lot of, you know, rejection around that at the time, I'm sure. Like, to even be able to get it, you know, it was so, so expensive. It was only something that was in, like, factories or labs and universities and things like that. He was, you know, the first commercial home computer is something he had. And he probably someone, had to convince them to sell it to him. I would say that they they probably didn't even really have, you know, a, an individual 
Yeah, I would imagine he probably had to like build it, you know, client spec for himself. He Mm -hmm. did say that the company he bought it from um, was based in America and that he had to take a course when he bought it um, from them in order to understand what to even do with it because he had very specific ideas about how he wanted to use it for music. And that's not what it was intended for. So he took a course and he said he learned one piece of code from by the end of it because he had a specific thing he wanted to do and he they gave him that specific command and he said that's all he needed from there. He wanted to voltage control an oscillator, go figure. <laughs> so that is, you know, how things got started. That's the the big turning point was him, you know, selling the family jewels getting this computer and um, learning this one piece of code in order to voltage control an oscillator. From there, I'd say enter David Cockrell. Yes, exactly. That's exactly where I was going to. Um, He got overwhelmed pretty easily, I think it says, in terms of his own knowledge, uh, you know, in engineering uh, and coding, you know, so he enlisted... uh, David Cockerell, who I believe is going to go down in the history books as as being one of the best and most um, most is like important influential influential uh, electronic music instrument designers of all time. You know, because he he not only did EMS but but went on to to lead you know an illustrious career working for Akai and um you know kind of developing sampling there and he's just he's a maverick for sure and uh we should really cover him honestly separately i think he's worth a a segment of his own yeah he surely had his own career that we would totally you know cross section with everything we talk about in the group um and the way he you know is important in this conversation is you know any idea that peter zinoviev had David Cockerell had to bring that to life. So, and he had a 100% success rate according <laughs> to Peter. So every idea that Peter had, David was able to, you know, make it real, make it a reality for him. Um, so it's really that team. And I, he even said, Peter said in a, in an interview we're watching that, um, everyone needs a David Cockerell. And we can definitely agree with that. Yeah. It, it becomes apparent that uh, Peter was sort of the ideas guy in the team of him and David. Um, He's definitely a visionary. The team of Steve Jobs and the Wozniak kind of ah, come to mind yes, yes, yes. Uh, when I think about uh, their relationship. Um, so, you know, I, I do agree with him. Everybody does need a David Cockerell. Yeah, so without David Cockrell, there really wouldn't be, you know, much to say about Peter Zinoviev. He would probably just be a geologist who bought a computer. Um, but because of David Cockrell, we have EMS, and we have the Synthi, and we have the VCS-3, and on and on and on and on. Starting in November of 1969, uh, which was long before, or I don't know how much long before, but it, it was definitely before Moog, and he makes that... <laughs> extremely clear um, in pretty much any interview or uh, article I've read. Yeah, we've we've brought this up a lot in past conversations we've had where, you know, we're following the trajectory of one person at a time. 
but they're always in parallel with the other people of the time. And there was obviously no internet. There was very slow news, right? So they didn't know what the other people were doing, but we have, you know, people at Bell Labs, we have Stockhausen, you know, we have the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, obviously, but you know, the, the people who are innovating in computer music, right? It's all happening kind of at the same time. People are innovating in, you know, early analog synthesis, Moog and Buchla and ARP, they're all happening at the same time. This very brief window, right around 69, all four of them, those are the major synthesizer companies. And when they learned of each other, you know, they must have thought like, is this guy copying me? <laughs> yeah, I think they really did because there like, was no way to know, you know, how is it that all of these ideas are happening at the same time? And I've heard, you know, many people talk about how history kind of has this theme. You know, I think even mathematics geometry things were, Electronics, were, were yeah. developing at the Physics, same time in sure. different places in the world and they couldn't have possibly known that the other person was doing it at the same time so synthesizers no different so i just found it interesting that you know our favorite synthesizer companies this early movement that we love to cover they were all building and innovating off of very similar ideas at the same time although they would all say they were all doing very different things and had very different approaches. But unless you dig deep, it's kind of hard to tell that <laughs> on the surface. It's right. all just kind of exciting to us and we just want to fiddle with the knobs, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it does. I mean, I would say at least from an engineering standpoint, you know, if you look at schematics, you know, a lot of the stuff is very different, you know, so it's very clear that they right. weren't copying. <laughs> yeah, lift the, the lid difference. and they are, they are definitely not copying from one another in those early, early circuits. But it's interesting to think about, too, the music that was happening at the time. And so obviously this was a push to, uh, you know, guitar focused bands that were maybe getting interested in innovating with their instruments and they were inter introducing the synthesizer into that world. And that's what made it so commercial. Well, and it played an integral role in the whole point of EMS Studios, which was to further Peter's explorations with the computer. You know, so he openly admits that, you know, every time somebody like Pink Floyd um, or the who bought a bunch of his gear, he got to continue his research, you know? So it was, it was almost a one-to-one -one relationship. Um, you know, the money that he was bringing in from the actual gear that he was selling to musicians, you know, with uh, his research. Yeah. He talked about how he put an ad in the newspaper to get funding for the computer music studio and just, he, purely wanted experimentation to happen there. He did not want to be a commercial studio. He didn't want to make commercial music. He didn't want to make music for, you know, sound effects, all the things that were happening at the, you know, the radio stations or the other studios in Europe. He purely wanted to be able to explore the ideas in his mind and experiment with the equipment and have it be, you know, for experimenting for experimenting sake, right? Yeah. I mean, he more or less just wanted to talk to the computer and have it talk back. Yeah. He's definitely got a lot of futuristic ideas and I imagine having to learn what the technology was at the time and dealing with, you know, limited storage space and all these things uh, must have felt really frustrating for someone who could see the future of computers. Well, he kind of admitted to not liking the 
instruments that his company was putting out. Yes, that's true. So like he didn't even like the like synthy. Something that we learned kind of early in this month's research was, you know, we come at this from, you know, EMS, the synthesizers, that, you know, cool studio they had in London in the 60s and 70s, you know, all the cool rock bands that stopped by. But then we find out that he actually hated the synthesizers. He didn't even use them. He doesn't know how they work. He doesn't want to fiddle with the pins. It was just a means to an end. It was a miniature version of what was going on in his studio, and he, you know, wanted it to be commercially available to fund his continued research, which, you know, is a very common approach that people will take, you know? Right. The money's got to come from somewhere. Those computers are not cheap. (laughs) Exactly. So that kind of shocked me to find out that the person that I associate the most with some of my favorite synthesizers doesn't want to even touch them. Right. Or mess around with them at all. Or wasn't even really proud of the accomplishment. Right. Right. (laughs) So that's really shifted my thinking about who Peter Zinoviev is and, you know, what his legacy is and how I even think about him anymore. So Mm -hmm. I guess I more think about now, you know, David Cockrell's the reason we have, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, basically. Yeah. He was designing, it seems, everything up until around 1975, Um, then some other people came into the picture um for example tim Orr uh is the guy behind uh responsible for the vocoder um yeah that was another big one mm-hmm. the the studio vocoder 5000 which is an insanely like big desktop unit that i've seen uh Kraftwerk, uh uses that one um stevie wonder i think was a a big user as well i heard peter say that at one point his his computer music studio was like a giant vocoder. It's like the room was a vocoder. Yeah. That was an early technology that I think that, um, you know, David Cockerell probably helped, um, you know, despite the fact that he didn't design the actual vocoder, I think, I think he was involved with helping Peter, uh, come up with the concept of what might be possible with that technology. Interesting. Yes. Cause there was someone and I, I didn't write down who it was, but someone said they walked in to, uh, Peter's studio to kind of check it out. Cause it was sort of the thing at the time when he first got started, it was like people were stopping by, right. To check it out. And he said he walked in and Peter was literally talking to his computer and trying to get it to talk back to him. <laughs> so it makes sense that that would be such a big part. This. I've been there before. Yeah. <laughs> Who hasn't? <laughs> Who hasn't? Um, I guess just to like wind back just a little bit, um, the reason for his interest in building this uh, sequencer on a computer, through the computer, was because Daphne Oram had taught him how to make electronic music with tape. And he rejected it right out. He's this is, you know... Too time-consuming, too fiddly. Why why would I do this? It just didn't click for him. So that's kind of where we were like, okay, is he still considered someone that would fall under the Cosmic Tape Music Club umbrella? Yes, and because I think that the the criteria really is that it's people that have strong feelings about tape (laughs) and the tape process. Like He is an example of somebody who had strong feelings in the negative department. You know, we'll so also he, cover people that have strong feelings in the positive. positive. Well, to speak of that, he actually, you know, you know, obviously Daphne came by. He worked with her a little bit, figured out he hated tape um, and then ended up uh, both Delia Derbyshire and Brian Hodgson from the BBC Radio Phonic Workshop 
left the radiophonic workshop and worked with Peter as Unit Delta Plus because they thought, okay, here's what we'll do. We're going to make commercial music, commercial sounds, and that's how we're going to fund the studio. They thought they were going to make just bazillions of dollars doing this uh, computerized version of what had been you know, going on at the, at the radiophonic workshop. Um, and I believe they made one piece. They got one commission. For Phillips, they, he said, yeah. They made one. He, he said something like, we made a sound. It was like, whoosh, or something. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, we did that. And it made us tons of money. But again, they, that's really not who those people were. That's not what they cared about, and that's not why they were making electronic music. And so it quickly fell apart. Um, and he said that you know they went on to do it, and they weren't that successful either. Yeah, we <laughs> which know, I thought was pretty funny. We kind of know their stories, but Delia is someone who loved working with tape and did not want to work with computers or sequencers, and just didn't understand why anybody was interested in that. It makes so sense that they would they not collided. jive. Yeah. You know, at one point they did work together; their worlds collided, and. And that must have been a really interesting room to be in, <laughs> yeah. to be a fly on that wall. They did do the first, um, I guess, elect, what would they call it, the first electronic music concert or the first computer music concert? I would say computer music. Yeah. So the Unit Delta Plus people um, put on, you know. One the, show. He was a big one-off one guy. He Now that I'm thinking about <laughs> He's it. He's like, he, I'll try that. No, yeah. that's not for me. He was a big one-off person. <laughs> yeah, they only lasted about a year. But they did this concert. And you may have seen the clips from this. Because there's actually really good footage um, from this concert. And from a lot of the things that he was doing at the time. Um, and it went over, as you would expect, very poorly. But it was, um, you know, I think a success in terms of what they were trying to achieve, which was turn the computer on, leave the stage, and have it create music that would be different every time based on, you know, the input. It's always going to be random. Yeah, and like most electronic music uh, concerts and setups, it probably took them all day to set it oh, up. days. I mean, they had days. to load yeah, they had everything to... from his studio. Well, I'm just talking about even getting it on stage yeah. and getting it set up. It took you know, several took young boys. Forever. There's footage of that too, actually. And they probably just did a little... <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like, it was a whole... I actually don't know how long it went on, but I can imagine being in that crowd and expecting something just spectacular and groundbreaking to happen. Yeah. It was a sold-out crowd. I'm sure it was marketed super yeah, well. like robots better fly out of this machine... And then instead and it was just a tower on a stage. Delia came up, turned it on, left the stage. No one talked. Nothing visual happened. There's no liquid light show. No recordings it's not were made. No recordings were made. Which is the real bummer. Yeah, that would have been... Yeah, there's a little video footage, but an audio recording would have been... I've been looking for Unit Delta Plus audio for pretty much, it feels like, my entire life. And it doesn't exist. Not I, that I know of. Yeah, I used to think it was because they were like intentionally secretive, but then I realized it's because they didn't. There <laughs> was the project it didn't, it didn't make it to that level. <laughs> they yeah. did that one sound for Phillips, and they did this one concert, and I believe that that was it. I'm sure they spent a lot of time arguing about uh, yeah. the process, but you know it was groundbreaking. You know you can't fault Peter Zinoviev for not being you know the first at most things he was trying to do, whether or not anybody cared or understood. At the time, you know, what impact it made. You know, he was on his own path. I'd say that's very similar to many of the people we've talked about, like Stockhausen or Zanakis. They were in their own world. They had their own ideas about things. And they had to push against the establishment or 
you know, even other people who were also innovating at the time, um, who just flat out rejected it or didn't want to finance it anymore. It was a real uphill battle. And to stay so committed to your own vision is something I've seen as a theme with a lot of these innovators that we cover. And I always love getting to talk about them because it gets me so jazzed and reminds me that, you know, the unique ideas we have as artists and innovators is something to really lean into, even when you feel really alone. Yeah. You just <laughs> have that. to keep showing up and, you know, all of the people that we talk about have been the ones that have kept showing up. Yeah. Not all of them lived glamorous lives. Not all of them were, um, received well in their time or, you know, even some of them died very poor and forgotten. Um, but they stayed true to what they were about and what they were seeking and, and trying to make happen. And we are benefiting from them doing that. So, yeah, it definitely wasn't a scene of sellouts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's another thing. Um, in one of his more recent interviews, he just talks about how, um, even the ideas that he's working with today. Um, still he has absolutely no interest in their commercial or popular success or, um, influence, you know, Mm -hmm. it's experimentation for experimentation's sake. It's art for art's sake. You know, he's never going to be swayed by that. Can we, you know, just say that that comes from a place of privilege? Yes, we can say that. That is also true. But, you know, that doesn't take away from his innovations. It's just part of his specific story that he didn't have to work. Mm-hmm. So we won't hold that against him. Certainly not. <laughs> Another fun thing about this same time is, you know, like all the rock stars were coming by, you know, to check out the studio. And of course, Sir Paul McCartney was among them. He had visited Daphne's studio as well, and she didn't know who he was. I love that. He visited <laughs> Peter's studio. And just like Stockhausen, Peter was not interested in him or his popular music and just totally wrote him off and like barely gave him the time of day. And I was just like, oh, Paul, you're always getting snubbed by the people that like you reference as your biggest influences. They really thought so little of you. And I was just like, oh, poor Paul, always getting snubbed. But there he was. He was right in the middle of it. Wait, isn't Paul dead? Oh boy. That, you know, that has, that is still still debated to this day. So was it the real Paul or the fake (laughs) Paul that went to see Peter Zinoviev and got snubbed? We'll never know. Actually, I don't know the year when everyone says he died. So I could probably look that up and see. But, um, unit Delta plus and the Beatles did this event called carnival of lights in 69 that was like a liquid light show psychedelic carnival experience and they the beatles specifically made music for this event that no one has ever heard it wasn't recorded um and i am obsessed with this that this happened it's like a grateful dead acid test kind of thing Mm -hmm. and i'm just like we have got to find this there's got to be somebody alive who was there and who can tell us about it? Or because no one had... talks about it. I find these links and they're dead. They don't go anywhere. And I can't find anybody who knows about this. So this is my plea. I want to know about the Carnival of Lights. I want to know who knows about it, who was there. 
I want to know what that experience was like and what that music was like. And maybe if you had a little portable tape recorder. (laughs) Yeah. I mean. That would have been amazing. There's got to be something. There's got to be something more we can find out. There's a copy of the flyer, which is, you know, very psychedelic and of the time. So I'm just curious, was Delia, you know, making tape loops while Paul was fiddling with a, I don't think the, they had built any synths yet. So what were they doing? Was the computer talking to them? You know, I, mean, I think that there. What was this show like? Voltage-controlled oscillators to, were happening. You know, yeah. I think that you know synthesizers were maybe not formally called synthesizers, but they were definitely in the picture. You know, like lab equipment has been around for yeah. a very, very long time, and. A, a lot longer than synthesizers. Yeah, I mean, his studio was built on test equipment. Sure. Mostly. And then, you know, from there, getting the computer and then whatever David Cockrell was building for him. They had some noisemakers, for yeah. sure. Yeah, some tone generators. Some tone generators. So, yeah, that's that's my dream. If I could um, get in a time machine and go to that festival, um, I want to be that's at what the, I want to do. I want to be at the Unit Delta Plus show. Well, that's what that would have been, I think. It oh, you mean the, the, the one act, at the The concert, hall. yeah. Yeah. That would have been fine, but I'm talking a psychedelic carnival. Both. You know me, I'm a both I want to be at that. <laughs> I, I guess be. it's because we have footage of that other concert, so I'm like, I feel like I was there. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad that was Feels sufficient for you. <laughs> oh, here's another fun thing I found out. In 1968, um, Peter Zinovia submitted a um, computer music-generated uh, piece, composition, called ZASP to the IFIP, which I believe is like the International Federation of uh, Information Processing. The International Federation for Information Processing held that's a mouthful. A held a comp, a composition competition as part of it, and Peter Zinoviev's piece Zasp with Alan Sutcliffe. I always want to give credit as much as I can to everybody else who was involved. Um, they came in second, and who came in first? Zanakis. Mm. The meeting of the minds. It was happening everywhere, whether they knew it or not. I don't know if they knew each other or they interacted at all. Well, I certainly believe that. But they both submitted to this and came in first and second. So I'd always love when I find those threads that they share in common. So So that was like that time period. This is like 68, 69. Everything we've just been talking about is all from 68, 69. uh, Are we ready for a little tech break? I think we are. I think it's time to talk about how they kept things going. So now we're in the era of EMS, Electronic Music Studios. Um, and they had a little storefront in London to sell these synthesizers. So I guess you could come in and see them and then buy them. And Tell me all about what these synthesizers were. Well, I'm really just going to talk about the Putney. Okay. Um, in 1969, the Putney was released and it's a three oscillator synthesizer. Um, it is called formally the voltage control control studio. That's what VCS stands for. That's where the VCS comes into play. Three, maybe three oscillators. Yeah. I think that, that sounds right. Sounds like a band, the voltage controlled studio three. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, so I can see why they didn't call it that. <laughs> I would buy that band's tape. 
for sure. Um, side project. Um, and then also the DK one keyboard, uh, nicknamed the crink cricklewood, which was the cricklewood, which is, this is the first time hearing this. What is that? Uh, that's apparently where David Cockerell was, where his studio was, where his actual like in home studio was. That's where he was operating. And the Putney is is where, um, Peter was living at the time in London. Wow. So So if you're familiar with those areas, this is, you know, not strange knowledge. Not at all. I apologize for being alarmed by the word cricklewood. It just like, it's such a fun word to say crickle. But the very, uh, ASMR, the Cricklewood <laughs> was a velocity sensitive, which I actually did a double take on this when I first, um, that's right. You didn't that. believe me when I, I told you, I did not because I, I just hadn't heard that term associated with an analog device. Um, but it was in fact, uh, vo- uh velocity sensitive <laughs> and it had its own oscillator and, um, the ability to, um, trigger, you know, envelopes and things from the VCS three. Um, and you could play it. If you turned the oscillator tracking all the way up, it would track one to one. So you could actually play a a melodic piece with the keyboard itself. Um, probably more accurately. I mean, actually certainly more accurately than the, um, original design of the VCS three. So, it's been, you know, it's something that can now be modified to be a lot more stable, but the initial version was almost thought of as a, as like a sound effects device, um, right. because it had uh, mic and instrument inputs and a spring reverb and speakers and a joystick, you know, so like everything sort of pointed towards this idea of like, you know, plug things into it and like move the joystick around and it'll make, you know, these wild sounds. You know, and um, it wasn't really until the keyboard was also introduced that people started seeing it as something that they may be able to play melodic material with. So you're saying that the VCS3 didn't have a keyboard at first? Or are you saying that when they made the VCS3, which The VCS3 does not have a keyboard, period. Gotcha. When they added it. Yes. I think I'm mixing up all of my synthes now. I'm going to throw some links into the So the VCS-3 <laughs> is the wooden box. Right. I know what the VCS-3 yeah, is. Yeah, with, with um, the joystick. I'm going to throw some links in here so you guys can see what we're talking about and kind of follow along a little bit. Um, so I'm just going to briefly go over the architecture while she's doing that. Um, three uh, voltage control oscillators. The third one uh, does not really go into the audio range, so it was used more of a uh, control. It was just a very low-frequency oscillator that was used more for control purposes um, that can now be you know, added like a high or low range to it, so you can use it for both. But um, the filter is a very unique design. A lot of people thought that it was a 12 uh, decibel per octave uh, cutoff or an 18, I mean uh, 18 decibels per octave cutoff. Um, but it is neither uh, a 12 or an 18. It does both. It has different stages. And when the, um, when the, uh, resonance is turned all the way up, the lows, actually the low frequencies actually get, uh, cut and reduced to the point to where they consider it a bandpass filter as well. So, um, very unique filter architecture, um, it's so refreshing that it's not anything like 
the 24 decibel per octave filter that Moog designed that's extremely famous. Um, and so it has its own sound. Um, if you would like to hear examples of it, um, I don't know. What are some of your favorite pieces? I really like the soundtrack to Dark Star. Yes, we did um, this Friday our retro sci-fi film for the week was Dark Star, inspired by, um, you know, our coverage of Peter Zinoviev this month in the group. And, uh, you know, in an interview I read with John Carpenter, he talks about how um, there was this one dude in the San Fernando Valley who had this rad synth that he had never seen before. Nobody else had this. And so he went over there for four hours and he did the score for Dark Star. And the way he described it, he talked about pins. You had to put all these pins in and, you know, just the timing and the way he described it. We know now it was the VCS-3. So the tie-in with retro sci-fi movies and soundtracks and sound design and, you know, and synthesizers, like, it, there's no end to these threats. I keep finding them everywhere I look. Yeah, you can barely find anything where, you know, John Carpenter admits or talks about it being the VCS-3. So he did not care he, yeah, what he it was. No, he didn't care. It was it just, just that so happens. it did what he wanted it to do. Yeah. And he did say, you know, it can't be recreated. Whatever he did in that time was what it was. I don't know what he recorded it to, but we do know that um, Peter Zinoviev's studio did have, you know, reel-to-reel and tape machines galore that were in the mix as well. Yeah, it seemed to have quite a few. Yeah, you couldn't avoid that at the time, obviously. Uh, the Radiophonic Workshop uh, definitely had a VCS-3, although I would say that a lot of its most, you know, no, the, the better-known works were done before they received that. Yeah, he did talk about how, you know, he gets kind of lumped in with the Radiophonic Workshop a lot, but he didn't work there or do any work for them. It's just they bought... Or even outfit their initial... He bought their synthesizers. They bought his... Yes. What did I just say? They, they bought, bought his, his synthesizers. synthesizers. And yeah. he's just like, yeah, they had my stuff. That's kind of the end of it. And he, you know, obviously worked well, with Delia and Brian, but... They bought the Synthi 100, which was right. a massive, you know... Uh, tabletop unit. I mean, it was a piece of furniture yeah, let me in find itself. A good photo of the Cynthia 100. The Delaware. Um, and Everything has two names, just to keep us as confused as possible. That one <laughs> didn't uh, arrive until 1971. So it was actually the first thing they made, I think, after the, the VCS-3. They were really pumping them out. It was this monstrous thing. It doesn't surprise me at all that, you know, that Peter would want to design a monstrous thing that took up an entire room because that <laughs> seemed to be his vibe. Um, but yeah, it's just a massive version, I would say, of the synthy architecture. It had a yeah, sequencer built in. It was like three synthies. It had an, yeah, it was like three synthies. It had an uh, oscilloscope so you could see, um, you know, directly on it. It basically just, you know, was, was the synthy on steroids, I would say. A lot of them. <laughs> yeah, so it seems like they found, you know, the Synthi A was the first thing, and that, sorry, the VCS-3 was the first, and it was so popular, thousands were sold, right? Yeah. And so from that, it allowed them to keep creating more and more and more. So it was like this short period of time where they were creating a lot, and then it just kind of died. <laughs> Also very Zenovia-like. Yeah. I think, you know, 
it's it's a sad story. Burn bright. Of what you know happened to EMS and why it wasn't able to, you know, continue to thrive. And there's some parallels with ARP as well. Um, similar kind of just. Oh, you're talking about the fact that um, the Synthi Highfly. Yes. Which was yes, a their downfall. <laughs> guitar intended product that I still to this day don't really understand how it works. I'm not going to go into detail I'm about that one. I'm going to try to find that as well. I know what it looks like. I've seen them around, but it, like apparently, you know, you plug the guitar in and it's got some synth features to it. You, it maybe tracks the pitch of the guitar and, and out comes the synthesizer. So it just seems like, you know, they were, you know, trying to make something that the guitarist that sort of ruled the uh, commercial market for you know music instruments at the time and almost to this day, right? Yeah. Um, guitarists rule the world. <laughs> that they can put you know something in in the guitarist's hands that they can you know do a lot of the same things that they might do with the synthie. Um, so apparently it didn't go well, much like the ARP situation, which we won't go into detail about, but. Yeah, that's for another conversation. But they just have so much parallel in that they tried to expand to these other markets. They relied on some funding that maybe wasn't really there, and it just collapsed. Because, you know, they put a lot of money into R&D for something that didn't sell. And you just need one thing like that when you're a small company to, to go poorly. And, you know, that was the end of that. I found this really cool... Um, the re-release of the Synthia Highfly from Digitana Electronics, and they show the version they're making. But then, if you scroll down a little bit, you can see the original version from 1972. Uh, Digitana, for those um, that aren't in the know, is a super cool company that puts out like a lot of complementary devices um, to use with newer, older um, EMS hardware, and so it makes sense that they might reissue something like this and i'm sure that it's very cool and it's really interesting too for them to re-release the thing that brought about the downfall of ems and i'm curious you know how well that's going for them well sort of like don't touch the cursed stone you know right but i think that you know it makes sense that it would be even more popular in today's market now yeah it's interesting right because uh after <clears throat> after EMS kind of folded, Peter didn't really do anything in music again until 2007, I think, is when he kind of got, you know, somebody reached out to him again because of this resurgence that we're having. He took a geology break. Yeah, he took a geology break to make music, and then he took a music break to do geology. <laughs> I don't know what he was doing, to be honest. It's the dark years. Um, somebody in the group might know, though. Um, but EMS did change hands and it does still exist. So they sold it to, oh God, a hospital bed company, I want to say. You got me on that one. Um, and obviously things didn't go well and then they sold it again and now, you know, Robin Wood was able to buy it. So Robin Wood is uh, somebody who started off as a technician, probably an assistant to David. Yeah. He, he consistently worked for EMS his whole life. Yeah, and so he, you know, eventually was able to strike a deal and take over the company, and now builds synthes. Um, they do synthie A, um, 
They do not do them in the original case because apparently the Spartanite cases are no longer being made or manufactured or can be found, really. <laughs> so if you find one used, you can actually still get him to put, you know, the Cynthia in it, um, you know, but he does not supply the cases any longer. Um, he also does the VCS3 um, and the Cricklewood, the keyboard, um, and I think that's it. But, um, you know, we're actually on the list. Um, I've heard that it takes 10 years or more for your name to come up. Because uh, they only pump out a few uh, units a year, so you know that'll give us some time to earn the money to afford it. Yeah, that um, when we every year when we get the update of where we are on the list, I'm like, Phew, still ten years to go. <laughs> so am I. So am I. <laughs> still got time. But yeah, owning that um, original design is something we care about, um, and we know there's a lot of you know, clone options that are great and I'm glad they exist, but some things, you know, you want a classic car, you're not going to get like the new beetle if you like the original beetle. Right. But that's, you know, that's a debate that we have all the time in this group. And we love, we love a positive rousing debate about, you know, clones versus originals versus analog versus digital versus using the app, all that kind of stuff. I think I'm just happy to be in a time when, all of those things are available. So if I'm on the road and I have an iPad, I can still do it. Or if I'm at home in my studio, I can use the real thing, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Speaking of which, there is iVCS3, which yes. is a we iOS app that is really awesome. Honestly, like if you're looking to, I mean, that's another reason why I can't see myself, you know, getting one of the other clones is that I can, you know, if I'm really jonesing, so to speak of, you know, to mm -hmm. mess around with the synthy. I have that ability in my phone and it actually probably behaves a lot more predictably, um, which is both the charm and, you know, the, <laughs> the detriment of it. But so I know we posted about this already, but I'm going to put a little YouTube video, which I haven't fully vetted. So it might be terrible, but it's about the, the IVCS three. So that's going into the comments as well. Um, okay. We were getting really technical and nerdy about everything, and then I kind of cut you off. We always are like, well, veering all over the place. I was sort it's of a cosmic conversation. We never know where it's going to go. I was sort of expecting there to be sort of just <laughs> this natural cut off with it, you know. Like, there's only much, only so much tech time allotted <laughs> me. So, <laughs> I mean, you can have more. There's so much more. I mean, they did so much cool stuff. I think. Um, the Spectron video synth is something that I want to research more. Again, we're in the middle of the month, right? So we still have time to, you know, review this conversation, review more articles, find more videos, get deeper on the stuff that we're just starting to learn about for having this conversation. So I'm excited to spend a little I more time. I bet you Peter would say that the Spectron video synth was the very first video synth. He probably would. I think he actually was the first person to have like a screen in the mix with his computer setup. Nobody was doing anything with a screen. Yeah. Whereas we know that there are other video synths that might've been percolating around 1974, which is when the Spectron, I don't think it was ever released, but like when it was made at least. wasn't released. I don't think. Yeah. I think he just made it for himself. Yeah. We know that FC oh, Judd, wow. which is somebody that we'll definitely talk about. Um, he made, a version of a video synthesizer. Yeah, that thing's really cool. That one, I think, was analog, though. 
Yeah, this is, um, it's interesting because if I just look up uh, the Spectron, it takes me to the Wikipedia page for video synthesizer in general. Um, and then I guess within that is the history of the EMS Spectron. I and did check that out. Yes, yeah. it was for Richard Monkhouse um, developed a hybrid video synthesizer and it used the EMS patchboard system. It says here to allow completely flexible connections between module inputs and outputs. The video signals were digital, but they were controlled by analog voltages. And there was a digital patchboard for image composition and an analog patchboard for motion control. And here, there's a little image here that was created by. That looks very LZX. Yeah, so I think it <laughs> looks like it was handmade with paper. Looks like a paper cutout. This is crazy. I'm going to try to link this image. Yeah, it's a pretty cool image. Let's see if that comes through. Bloop. Nope, it's just going to take you to the Wikipedia page. But you'll see it there if you jump down to the Spectron. That's very cool to be able to see. I wish I could share the screen with you guys so you could see this image because it's exactly the kind of like minimalist early video synth stuff that I really love. Because yeah. I love having that like... I, I'm not anti-digital. I love analog being in the mix, though. The randomness, the sort of primitive nature. Um, there's something about it that I really connect with and makes me more excited than something that is perfect or like a perfect mathematical equation. Yeah. That and doesn't it, excite me as much. You know, and, and the, the ones that are around today, like we you know, we've built a very meager, um, LZX, uh, DIY system. Yes. That's kind of on pause right now. I'm excited to get back to that. We're close to being done with it though. And it's, um, it's just so darn simple and it's, it feels a lot like a primitive, um, analog synthesizer, you know, like an MS 10, a Korg MS 10 or something like that. But, but, you know, visual and it's just, the simplicity of it, you know, the fact that you can just make some like basic shapes and patterns and things I think is the charm, uh, for me, because it, it seems like something that would be infused in some of the like psychedelic, you know, video work of the sixties and seventies. Yeah. Speaking of sort of, uh, primitive or, you know, randomness, I'd love to touch on a little anecdote that we learned about how Peter was really interested in randomness. He didn't want to, you know, put an equation in and have it spit something out. That is a very common thread, I would say, amongst the people that we cover here in the Cosmic Tape Music Club. Um, you know, the, many of the people that we've covered so far have an obsession for randomness. So that is sort of the ultimate goal to achieve, I would say, with electronic music would be something that you know, resembles true random behavior. And maybe you can explain uh, how he was doing that. Oh, uh, so his earliest example, which he said that was happening like pretty much right away, like before they even designed the, the synthy, um, is that he had a Geiger counter connected to the computer and it was measuring the radioactivity of the computer itself and generating random sets of numbers. You know, so there was no algorithm involved. It was literally sampling from the actual radioactive activity of the machine um, to then control oscillators and other things to, you know, 
and he said that it did a very, very good job of doing pure random. So it makes sense to me because, you know, that, that voltage is going to be constantly fluctuating. Yeah. And just a steady stream of random numbers, never repeated, no sequence, just on and on endless, endless information, um, to create the randomness. And so I always find that so interesting because it's like, okay, so the point is that you want to, to take this sort of, uh, painful tape splicing process and make it more automated. That was really the point. He saw how processes were being done with computers in factories, turn this on, turn this off, send this down the line. And he wanted to do that with tape music, basically. He didn't want to get his hands dirty. I always think of him as like this aristocrat who's like, can't be bothered with the tape and the splicing and, you know, the manual labor of it all. The pin patching. Yeah. But then it's funny because, you know, it's going back to the pin patching, um, He's, he made a comment that in one of the things that we uh, actually watched where he was like, well, at least it wasn't, you know, leads, <laughs> you know, so he, he thought he thought cables were even worse. You know, it's like, well, at least our synthesizer had a, a, a patch bay with pins and it yeah. didn't have these messy cables everywhere because that is the worst thing. I don't think many of us would disagree with that to an extent. I love him. I get where he's coming from. Um, but this kind of leads into, you know, his ultimate invention was that he wanted an implant in his arm muscle. And he designed it with David Cockerell. They actually figured out how to design an implant. Look, we're both like, no. Yeah, I'm rubbing my arm. Like. <laughs> Don't implant me. But he wanted an implant that would then um, generate, I guess, he would think high note and this implant would then talk to the computer and it would generate the high note. It would generate a high note. And, and, you know, once again, you know, David Cockerell's batting a thousand, Yeah, he designs the thing. And the only thing that stops him from being able to put this in his arm is finding a physician that would do it. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I think that, you know, he's also the, I guess the godfather of the like movement that, you know, now people are doing things to themselves, right? Biohacking. Yeah, that's a good but point. But he was doing it because he didn't want to, again, was. he wanted to automate or like uh, take away any resistance between his thoughts and the ability to make that happen through the computer. Another very common thread amongst these electronic music instrument designers is the idea of, you know, taking out the resistance or the go between, between like our, our minds and our ability to control things, you know? So we've seen that time and time again, people just want to be able to fluidly control devices with their bodies and minds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uninhibited. It makes sense to me because yeah. if you think about the fact that, you know, if he's really working with computers to this level and you understand that your brain is like a computer, I can imagine the frustration when you hit that wall of like, Oh, I just, I can't break through this, this man machine problem conversation. Right. Then the other part of me thinks 
why do we want machines to be man and why do we want man to be machine? Like I'm still grappling with that when we're always trying to infuse humanity into the machine. We want the randomness. We don't want it to be perfect. We don't want it to be a machine. We want it to take care of some automation stuff for us, but we still want it to be empathetic or understand beauty. Yeah, I mean... Or surprise us. I guess we want it to surprise us. As creators, we we usually gravitate toward creating things in our own image. Yes, I would say this man-machine conversation is a lot of, you know, who is God? Is it, are we God? Of our own little universes? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's a rhetorical question, but <laughs> um, I think that's the question at the heart of this. Yes. And music is sort of the language with which we're expressing this desire. This is getting very heady now. <laughs> <laughs> you took it there. I know. I'm always going to make things a little cosmic, but a little psychedelic. But he took it there a lot. That's true. I mean, this is so the way So this he is thinks. the spirit of he's, Peter. He's not as interested in being sort of like a, I'm a computer music innovator, as he is wanting to write, create experiences where we're interfacing with technology and with computers in a way that creates art and helps us think deeply about things. So he's a very complicated person. And in all of the readings that we've done and interviews we've watched, like he's still such an enigma to me. Like I still don't quite understand all of these things, these, these things that don't seem like they belong in someone's brain together geology and crystal formations and computer music and wanting to put an implant in yourself like how is this all in one person he seemed to always be putting things in terms that when he you know spoke about the the things that he was excited about he kept he seemed to really keep it high level right and yes, he didn't get his hands dirty with the details but i think that he did that in on purpose because you know he knows I think he understood people well enough to know that that's not something that, you know, everyone's going to latch on to. Like the, the, it's more about right. the, the thing, you know, the, the high level stuff, the, you know, the, the concepts that are, you know, f fun and exciting for people to imagine. Yeah. It's almost like he gave people a little gift of inspiration. So he'd be like, oh, I have this vision. And he would just talk about it in high minded terms and hand it to someone and then they would develop it into something. Right. But very rarely do you hear, you know, the, the super, super specifics and details, you know, of the certain projects, you know, spoken about by him, um, which is different, I would say, than other people that we've covered. Yeah, he's definitely unique. As much as I've, I've always thought of him in the same vein as everybody else we've covered, especially the BBC Radiophonic Workshop people for some reason, or, you know, even Arp or Moog, but he's not. It's like these things have been put on his legacy, and he's that's not really who he is. That's not the whole picture. And so it's been really fun to learn more about all the other things he's interested in. Um, you know, he's in the past, I would say like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, he was really ramping up some other like compositional ideas he was working on with, um, you know, sculptors. He's working with, um, you know, symphony orchestras. He's infusing electronic and tape music into, you know, traditional elements. 
um, I guess, more of like the classical arts. And he's bringing innovation and computer music and technology into those spaces and collaborating with people on these huge projects that are like funded by, you know, universities and stuff. Um, and so the music itself is not really anything that you would want to like put on a Spotify playlist. Um, it's not really like commercial consumption. It's more about the idea of, of, you know, whatever it is that he's working on technology wise and how it relates to music and then what comes out of it. It's not really as much concerned with, um, the composition itself. Like he worked on an opera where he wrote the libretto, which is the words and the story, and he created a new language. And these people had to sing this language he made up because he was more interested in, you know, making a new sound. And what are those sounds? Do they still evoke the same emotion? even though they're not English words. So he just really likes to mess with people, I think, <laughs> and turn your world inside out. Do we have Handy, the composer that he collaborated with? Um, so for the, uh, let me grab that. It was like the Mask of uh, Orpheus. So Harrison Burtwistle, That's someone the name. he worked with that a lot. That is the name, yes. Um, Harrison Burtwistle wrote the opera, the music for the opera, The Mask of Orpheus, and he did the the libretto and he also uh did this piece um tristan's folly in the opera tristan by hans werner hens i'm not sure i'm saying that exactly correctly please forgive me um he there was a tape by zinoviev included in this and that's a really interesting piece that's actually um i might link that later this week um so it'll be interesting to pull up some of the music that i can find it's very hard to find and he recorded music by him because it was these experiences or these sound effects, right? Um, or was part of something larger. But um, thanks to everyone's friend, Pete Kember of Sonic Boom, uh, who was also friends with Delia and tried to help bring you know her legacy back to life, he also helped Peter put together a compilation of recordings he did during the EMS years, which I've also posted about in the group. I remember when that came out. Yeah, I was really excited. Yeah, so that was... Um, 2015? The Sort of like the EMS tapes or whatever, and it came out in 2015, I yeah, believe. And I I've, I've linked that in the group. There's not, you know, it's not really online to listen to. You'd have to have the physical copy, but there's a couple tracks up on YouTube as well. Uh, it's on the uh, Spotify and Apple Music. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to find that as well. Yeah, it's definitely there. Um, on Spotify. I and used to listen to that um, while I was... <laughs> Uh, working at my, my previous job, I used to, it was kind of like my whistle while you work music and Interesting. my coworkers that. thought that I was extremely strange <laughs> for listening to it because when you listen to it, you'll know what I am. Just imagine yes, it's called electronic calendar. Sorry. I forgot. Imagine listening to this body of work, like in a place where, you know, people are listening to top 40 and like 2020s top 40. I don't even know what that is. Right. And like, hey guys, you want to hear this uh, collection of sound effects from 1969? Yeah. And I'm listening to like the weirdest, hissiest, like, you yeah, know. Yeah, this is definitely some experimental stuff. So here's the Spotify link to that album, which is, uh, again, just a compilation. It's called Electronic Calendar, the EMS Tapes, and it was curated by Pete Kember. Um two hours of random 
stuff. Brother Pete. It's it's real random. Uh, the most recent, it actually came out last year, um, is a work he did with uh, a cellist named Lucy Railton. Uh, and I think this was something that they did for a live, again, you know, an installation or a live performance. A one-off. And then somebody was able to release it, you know, last year. And it's uh, Inventions for a Cello and Computer. And so I think we'll be doing a blog post of some of the music. So you can spend some time hearing the kind of work that he was creating. Um, and again, we don't really know where his music side comes from. It just says he was always interested in music. He was always interested in electronics. But it's not he didn't study it. No one in the family was musical. I don't know where that comes into play. It's very fascinating to me. I think he mentioned that he was in like a vocal project in college or something. Hmm. It was it was in that last thing that we watched. Yeah, but that's sort of where my research wants to continue is how does someone who's just sort of tangentially interested in music become known for, you know, their impact on electronic music? By accident. When that wasn't really the, <laughs> the intention. Next up, we have our personal music submissions. Every Friday, we give our Cosmic Tape Music Club members a chance to post a track to the personal music comments thread, and then we choose a lucky few to be featured as a part of the podcast. The first submission is from Justin Wynn, and it's called Audio Emission 02, The Big Bounce, by TMA1 Audio Emissions.
All right, the next submission is by Gene Marasuski, and it's called Give Me a Break by Tapeworm. for tuning in to the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast hosted by The Galaxy Electric. Each month we bring you a conversation on a pioneer in early electronic music. Brought to you by our private Facebook group, The Cosmic Tape Music Club. Request to join today using the link in the show notes or search for us in the Facebook app. Till next time, stay cosmic. <laughs>